Amen. Thanks, Brian. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I, I think that I've got a chance to meet a number of you. Uh, if I haven't, I'd love to, love to do that. But my name is Lance, and uh, it's a joy. It's a cool thing to get to, to pastor here at Midtown. It's been said uh, numerous times already, welcome. Of course, we, we mean welcome, but I, I want to say thank you as well. We really are grateful, grateful that you took time out of uh, summer Sunday morning. Uh, there are precious few of these left. They're coming to an end. And you, for whatever reason, whether or not uh, it's heartfelt commitment, uh, you've been driven by your theology, your love of God, those, all those good reasons, uh, or for whatever reason it is, uh, you found yourself here in the midst of a group of people who can encourage you and strengthen you, and I'm grateful for that. I am. I'm grateful that you have decided to spend your time with us, so we hope to be a blessing to you. Uh, we want to persuade you that Jesus Christ is, is worthy, that he gave himself completely for you so that you would have life. Uh, that's why we exist. If you are, have been with us over the summer, or maybe if you're new, uh, you might be wondering what we're teaching through. And we have been walking through an, a statement of faith. Normally here as a church, it's a normal practice for us to teach through books of the Bible consecutively. A lot of people call that expository preaching. It's one of the best ways that we can get the fullness of what God desires from us out of books. And so if you've been coming around and thinking like, they keep talking about this other statement thing and that's not the Bible and maybe you're getting, maybe you're getting a little worked up about it, I just want to put you at ease that September 6th, we're going to jump into 2 Corinthians. And so if you wanted to even begin reading ahead and praying through and looking at the themes of the book, it'd be good to marinate in it. Uh, we're going to take a good long time, probably 30 weeks or so, uh, to get through those chapters in 2 Corinthians. So that'll start on September 6th. For now, we have taken the last 10 weeks, and will a few more, walking through what's called the Gospel Coalition uh, Confession, or Statement of Faith. The reason we're doing this is because we are proposing that the church adopt this Statement of Faith as our own. And so, we did not want to make it a dusty document in a, in a compartment somewhere in the back. We want you to think about and wrestle with who we are, what we believe, is what defines us. And so I'm going to take a second and read the article, number 11. It's called God's New People. You'll find it on the back of the worship guide that you got when you came in. It should be on the screen behind me as well. I'm going to take a little bit of time and read through it. And there is some fancy language in here. I think of a lot of the articles that we've gone through so far, this one screams nerd the most. Uh, it was written in large part uh, by some seminary professors. I think a couple times they got a little bit, uh, a little bit seminarian. So hang in there. We're going to do our best to make things clear this morning. But um, some of the language for sure, I think, is getting at, maybe could have been simplified, but it's getting at the idea of church. What is church? You're here so it's probably an okay question for us to ask. What is this thing? Who are we and what are we doing? And this article is an attempt by the Statement of Faith to get at that idea. So I'm going to begin reading. This is the start of article number 11. We believe that God's new covenant people have already come to the heavenly Jerusalem. <laughs> when was the last time you said that to a friend? Oh, brother, isn't it grand we've come to the heavenly Jerusalem? So anyway, I, I shouldn't tease the thing that I want us to adopt, right? I'm going to ask you to vote for this, so that's bad. But, I mean, we can, be, we can be honest, right? It's wonky. So, to the heavenly Jerusalem. They are already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. This universal church is manifest in local churches, of which Christ is the only head. Thus, each local church is, in fact, the church 
the household of God, the assembly of the living God, and the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is the body of Christ, the apple of his eye, graven on his hands, and he has pledged himself to her forever. The church is distinguished by her gospel message, her sacred ordinances, her discipline, her great mission, and above all, by her love for God and by her members' love for one another and for the world. Crucially, this gospel we cherish has both personal and corporate dimensions, neither of which may, be properly, may properly be overlooked. Christ Jesus is our peace. He has not only brought about peace with God, but also peace between alienated peoples. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both Jew and Gentile to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. The church serves as a sign of God's future new world when its members live for the service of one another and their neighbors rather than for self-focus. The church is the corporate, corporate del- <laughs> back it up. The church is the corporate dwelling place of God's spirit and the continuing witness to God in the world. There's a lot to say there. This is a, a mouthful. As I so aptly demonstrated, this is a mouthful on what the church is, wrestling with all that the Bible has to say about who we are gathered. What did Jesus intend when he came? What did he leave behind? Is this a mistake? Is this an afterthought? Is this just something that man made up? Do we just love committees and groups and being part of things? Is that what we're, what we're doing here? These are all questions that we're wrestling with. And I think it's important, this article is significant because for many of us, we've never really pondered what is church and why am I a part of it? It's just something we kind of inherit, especially in the Western Christian world. Church for a number of generations was just a dominant thing. When you ask someone about their life, it's like, are, are you part of the Lions Club? What social things do you do? Do you bowl? You play tennis, cricket? What do you do? Oh, which church do you attend? It was just in a litany, a list of things that identified something about your social construct. I think it's important that we ask ourselves, what does the Bible say about this thing? What is the church? Is it, it doesn't matter at all. I think that for the most part, many people have a very weakened ecclesiology. It's a fancy word to say, the study of the church. What is the church? The doctrine of the gathered people of God, of a very weak one. And more than that, there's some people who just have a complete rejection of the concept altogether. They have no ecclesiology. And I think that some of it is a product of our time. There's an increasing and a a massively fast, I think, increasing segment of Christians who say, here's my solution to the church. I just don't go. Jesus saved me. My sins are still forgiven. I have my Bible. Starbucks makes good coffee. Why can't I just go by, by myself? You don't understand how I'm wired right? You just understand me. It's better for me to get alone anyway. God, I meet God by myself. And their, their idea is to completely opt out. Now, I don't know. I would blame this on millennials. I think I'm a millennial. I'm like right on the year where it shifts. I used to be Gen X back when everything was like extreme with skateboards and stuff. That was me. And now people tease me and say I'm this other thing. But I don't think that anti-institutionalism, organization, oh, you mean there's like a person in charge of something or there's an organization? I don't think that started with millennials. I don't want to say that because I know there's some hippie people 
And we're like, oh, you think you invented sticking it to the man? You don't even know, right? This feeling has been around for a long time. Just this idea, like, why would I be a part of an institution that sounds boring? I don't want to put a label on me. The Spirit of God blows wherever he wishes, and we just put him in a box with church. I think that is a dominant and growing thinking amongst a lot of Christians. And I want to I ask the question, is that a legitimate response for us? Because let me just be honest from the start. I think a lot of the critique is very honest and it's very real. You're going to be disillusioned with the church at some point. You really are. You're going to be bored of it. It's going to seem manufactured. It's going to seem like, man, this isn't exactly what Acts talks about. Look at the community they had. Except when I go, no one even talks to me. There's going to be a time in the next few months, someone should have invited you to lunch. They didn't. Their house is dirty. They're embarrassed. They just couldn't ask you. You're going to move boxes and move to a new place, and you're going to think to yourself, what about those strapping young men who should have been helping me right now? Someone's going to give you counsel that's going to be insensitive. You're probably going to see someone that's vitally connected to the church doing things or saying things, and you're going to say, that is decidedly unchristian. I will see an email, a text, and miss it completely. Maybe I'll just ignore it because I didn't get back to it. Or worse than that, I'll see it and not ignore it, but think to myself, like, I just don't know what to do with this. You're going to be painfully disappointed. All of us have felt that. I have felt this. People use phrases. I have a great friend who says, like, the church is nothing but budgets and buildings and big shots. And so he just rejected it. And I can honestly say that in the last six months, I have gotten to the point where I am so overwhelmed by the complexity of buildings and where should we be and where should we sit and how do we get the lease figured out and with budgets, what is happening with money and what do we do and how can we care for people who are here that I've gotten to the point where I've just thought to myself like, is there a monastery in Florida? Does that happen? You know, just real Christianity. Every one of us has been disillusioned at some point in that way. You will be disappointed with your church experience. You know why? Because we are the church and we are a bunch of disappointing folks. We really are. This is not new news. It's not new news that the church is broken and that sometimes it's disappointing. Of course it is. It's made of sinners like you and me. It will never be perfect. The question that we want to ask is, what does the Bible give us as a legitimate option when we're faced with that reality? What is the legitimate option? And I want to warn you against, I want to call you to something better than, something more faithful, something more plodding than the opt-out option. There are people who simply don't gather any longer. They have no pastors. They have no accountability. They don't commit to anything. And what I want to show you very quickly, if I can, is walk through a bunch of scripture and see where does, where does, where does the Bible commend the church to us? It's where we always ought to start. And then I'm going to do my best to sort of identify, to describe what the church is. We're going to talk about identity and the mission of the church after we look at the Bible and say, what does it say? What we're going to find is that a majority of the teaching in the Bible assumes a meaningful, organized connection to other Christians. It assumes an organized, meaningful connection to other Christians in a local place, 
Not just, yeah, you know, I know there's Christians in India and we're all spiritually one body, so we're good. In a local place, in an actual place where you can see them, it assumes it's so much so that even church discipline cannot happen unless there's a church. So some people are not meaningfully connected. Something goes haywire in their life. The Bible says take it to them one-on-one, then two or three, then to the elders of the church, and if not that, tell it to the whole church. And some people say like, oh, I, I found a shortcut. If there's no church to tell it to, then, I, then this just breaks down. There's an assumption behind it, and that's where I want to get at. So the first thing we're going to do is I want to see what does Scripture say, at least in some measure, about the church. We're not going to be able to cover it all. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. The first question that we're going to ask is, is the church an accident? Is it a placeholder? Is it a man-made time consumer while we wait around for Jesus to come back? That's the question. And I don't believe that that is an option for us. Jesus had the church on his mind. We're going to begin reading in verse 13 of Matthew 16. And I want you to see what Jesus is intending to do. It says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. In a moment, I'm going to do my best to to navigate a few of the complexities of this passage. I want to point out just a few things and then move on to a bunch of other texts. Why don't we take a moment and and pray together? Uh, Maybe don't, don't listen to me pray. Pray with me. Even just to echo, ask God to open your eyes, give you ears to hear. And whatever measure of, of sleepiness and tired and distractedness and hardness of heart or, or just confusion that you have, just ask God to cut through all of that and to speak to you. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful that we can call you Father today. That thought of approaching you in all of your perfection and holiness and to delight in you as one delights in a father, is astounding. I pray that you would you'd melt us, that you'd move in our hearts, just the wonder that that is. And I ask God now for clarity. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and do what you do. Bring to our remembrance all things. Take from Jesus. Lead us into all truth. God, I ask for those of us that would have a heart that is not ready to receive hardened, sometimes my my own heart included, God, I pray that you would convict, that you would break what needs to be broken. For those of us who are broken, confused, hurt, I pray that you'd bring comfort. God, send forth the Holy Spirit, who is our comforter today. Remind us of the gift that you've given us in your church. We're destitute, 
We don't want to just go through the motions. We don't want to make this just a, an exercise of thinking. We want to be moved in our souls. So we pray that you transform us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what I would want to say first and foremost about this passage in Matthew 16. Some of you may be thinking, why did we go here? And the reason you're thinking that is because you're astute enough to know that this passage specifically has been amazingly controversial throughout the years. For hundreds and hundreds of years, people have argued about what did Jesus mean when he picked Peter and he said to Peter, I'm going to build my church on you, and to do that, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. What in the world did he mean by that? Some people, namely the Roman Catholic Church, have taken that to believe that there is an apostolic succession that goes all the way to Peter, that he was basically the first pope, kind of. That was, that's kind of the idea. Other people have spent countless hours and numbers of pages, spilt ink, over exactly what keys of the kingdom mean. What's a key? How does it work? So we can't get in. You can give a million different metaphors and analogies on it. And I am going to give you a massive amount of pastoral, I don't know, exactly, to all of those questions. I'm not sure exactly the full extent of what Jesus meant by keys of the kingdom. I can't tell you exactly what it means of binding and loosing and how far that extends. What I want to point out to you is this, though. Like we saw last week, that Jesus came preaching the kingdom, and when he preached the kingdom, it built the church. He preached the kingdom, and then he left the church. That's what happened. He came preaching the kingdom. He accomplished the will of the Father. He resurrected and left, and what he left was the church. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a man-made thing. It didn't happen 80 years after Jesus left. All the disciples were like, man, we're really losing control of this thing. What are we going to do? I know we need to come up with a concept of some kind of organization. That's what we need. No, Jesus said, this group of people, the wake, the wake that's left behind when he comes through this world, people transformed, the people who say, who is the son of man? He is the Christ. That group is the church. That's what's called the church. And Jesus said, this isn't an accident. I'm going to build that thing. That's what this is about. The first thing we see from Scripture is that Jesus preached a kingdom, but he left the church. Then that same pattern is continued with the apostles. The apostles who heard much of his teaching then get to the point where they go out and they take this truth about Jesus, they preach the gospel, and what results? The church. Where the truth of God goes, the preaching about Jesus goes, what's left behind, people who have been been received by the Father, adopted, are connected to one another in what the Bible calls church. Jesus preaches the kingdom, what results is the church. The apostles go out, they preach the gospel. What results is a church. We see this all over the Bible. I want to show as well that it wasn't, they weren't content to simply preach the gospel and see people saved. They wanted them cared for. They wanted them gathering regularly. They wanted them taught consistently in the gospel. It's why you see thing like, things like Acts 14.23. In a description of the mission of church planting, we find leadership put in place. It says this, when they had had appointed elders for them in every church. The church is assumed. It's what results from the gospel being preached. And then in those places, there's order. 
There are, there's leaders put in place. The apostles did not leave saying, you know what, I'm so grateful that individual, individual souls were saved and sins were forgiven. They'll be fine. They'll figure it out. He knew the gift that the church was and he was, he was wanting to put it into place. He says the same things to Titus in Titus chapter 1. This is verse 5 of Titus chapter 1. This is why I left you in Crete, he says, so that you might put what remained... I love that phrase, what remained, the leftovers of the gospel explosion, this blasting that he does. He comes in and he fires Jesus at the people and God adopts them into his family. And what remains, he says, I left you to put that in order. One of the ways he does it is to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Then a third thing that we see. So the apostles were involved in church planting. It wasn't a mistake. Jesus preached the kingdom. He left the church. Another thing is, is that all the letters of the New Testament assume that in geographic regions, there is an organization of people connected and gathering regularly. That was the distribution network for the letters of the Apostle Paul. He didn't make a product. He didn't write the letter and then think to himself, oh, man, how do I get this into the hands of Christians? He knew when I write the letter, I can give it to the leadership of the church who has connection with the people who are left in place and they'll be read on Sundays, the first day of the week. They'll be read to them. It's the distribution network. It was the Walmart of productive product development. It was, it was everywhere. It would make sure that it got to the people. Sorry about the Walmart reference. It doesn't, it's potentially offensive. The apostles wrote every letter to a group of believers and the things that they said to them assumed connection meaningfully. So what we have is a growing understanding and kind of depiction of this thing called church. It's what results when people are adopted into Jesus' into Jesus's life. The church is that group of people who connect to one another because they have a shared belief and community. And a lot of people would say the argument here is not that a church is there. It's how do we define it? They want to argue over what the church is. And so they would say, well, you know, the the church is just us. It's just people. It's not organizations or buildings. And in some way, I'd say, sure. So the argument goes, when I'm at Starbucks and I see Simon, wherever two or more are gathered, right? And so there, there we are, right? That's the argument. And I get that. I don't want to undercut. Of course the Spirit of God is there. It's wonderful. But that's not all the New Testament teaches about the church. It shows, at least in some measure, that a geographic region, a collection of people, was given a name and a title. What church are you part, a part of? I'm a part of the church in Philippi. More than that, there was leadership put into place. So a group of people identified those who were uniquely gifted to teach or instruct or shepherd or care or serve, and they were commissioned in order to help that church stay connected and grow into Christ-likeness. Some of those elders, it says, even labored, labored in teaching and preaching in a more significant way than some of the other elders. In addition, these small little groups apparently had what could have been called like membership roles. For sure, they kept track of this person was recently widowed. This person has a need. They need to be visited. They can't get out. Some of the arguments in the New Testament come from the fact that these roles were not being kept up clearly enough. They met in rooms that were big enough 
in many cases, to hold more than 120 people. Have you ever read that and just kind of skimmed past to the beginning of Acts? What's left of this huddled mass, 120 or so people, and Jesus leaves? It says they're meeting in the upper room, in this room. Well, that's a pretty big room. So what we're seeing is this growing context There's groups of people from a particular location that name themselves the church of with roles for service and care and understanding, a plan of discipline in place, people that they help compensate who teach and help them to grow. And it's not too long before you can make a very biblical case for the idea that church, at least as the Bible speaks about it, is more than just it's me and my personal understanding of who Jesus is. I think that is one of the things that we basically see from the New Testament. Now, I don't want to be dogmatic about it. I think a church can look a million different ways. What's the best size of a church? I don't know. 12, 70, 105, 1,005, 20,000. I don't know exactly. We shouldn't be dogmatic about these things. How much does a pastor have to work? Do we need to call him pastor or priest or father? I don't know. What does it look like for people to share resources? We don't know exactly. I don't think we should be dogmatic, but we should also be very careful to reject the picture that we get from Scripture on what a church is. And what ends up happening is people who get disillusioned with one thing or another become very dogmatic. And they say, that's not really church. You're doing it wrong. If you knew better, you would be more like us. I think we want to be careful about that kind of thinking I think that there's a ton the Bible says about the church. Let me talk about two words that help us to get at who we are and what we do. The first is identity. So identity, an ID card, right? So what what is it? Who is the church? Who is the church? I think that most of you probably know this Greek word, the word that's most commonly used for church in the Bible. And that's because it's one of those words that painfully so has been pulled from Greek anglicized and put onto Christian things as though the watching world would be intrigued by it, right? You know the word. It's ecclesia. There was a little Bible college near where I trained right after high school that had, to, that had classes. It was called Ecclesia Bible College. The first time I had like a little minister's card and was commissioned uh, in anything in ministry, it was with Ecclesia Minister's Fellowship. This word is the most dominant, used dozens and dozens and dozens of times to describe what a church is. It's the identifying word. And this is basically what it means more or less. It comes from this root word to mean call out. So it's those called together or called out by a shared belief, community, and regular gathering. That's the idea. So any group that's called out, called together by a shared belief, community, and gathering, that's basically how the Bible uses this word ecclesia. This is this thing that I wish that the article, I I think it could state maybe a little bit more directly for those of us who have a harder time keeping up with fancy words. The church is basically this. It's that group of people who share Jesus Christ, who have Jesus as their head, as their source, as their authority. It's those who revel in him and gather together regularly to talk about their shared life in Jesus. That's what the church is. Some of the confusion, now I just want to be really, really careful, as though this is all perfectly clear. I get why 
more than the fact that it's just disillusionment. I get why some people are confused about church and what it is. The fact is the Bible uses this word in a few different ways. And the article mentions it. There's the universal church, which is this idea of every Christian everywhere. And then there's the local church. And sometimes it uses that same idea in the same verse. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul's writing and he says this, to the church of God that is in Corinth. So, church, and it's in a particular place. He's writing to a people, to a leadership that's gathered together. That's the church. But then he mentions this other greater idea of church. He says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. That phrase, called together. That same word for call is the base word of ecclesia, church. It says, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So you can, as an identifying word, use the word church to describe all of those who in every place, everywhere, call upon the name of Jesus. That's legitimate. It totally is. And so some people who have a pension to say like, I don't want to belong to a local church because the church is everywhere. It's everywhere the people are Christians. Yes, the Bible definitely says that. But I think we lose a little bit of something if we don't recognize that Paul also wrote specifically to the church in Corinth. It was in a particular place as well. So what we would describe as the identifying factors of the church is basically two things. There is the universal church and the local church. The word that we get for universal church, basically from the Greek, is, sounds a lot like Catholic. Have you ever been in a church before, in a Protestant church service, and you're re- reciting a creed, and you get to a point where they want you to say the Holy Catholic? Have you ever been, have you been there? Do you know that feeling? Have you almost said it and stopped? Some of you out of like protest been like, what? You just wondered what's going on with that? That word comes from a Greek word that just means universal. It means all Christians everywhere. And so, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church, the thing that identifies it is not the word Catholic, it's the word Rome, Roman Catholic Church. You are a part of the Catholic Church, the Church Catholic. In other words, every place, everywhere where people name Jesus Christ, you are a part of that. It's why nearly every creed for the number of years included that phrase, the word Catholic. We usually just put it in a lowercase c, so you're not tempted in any way to jump ship (laughs) and say, say, oh, well, if we're Catholic anyway, my grandparents will be a lot happier if I just, if I just, you know, and have you seen the buildings over there, right? You might be tempted. Of course, there's differences, but that's what that word means, universal. And for those of us who want to think about the church in universal terms, it's a beautiful thought. Have you ever considered that today, this very day, over the last number of hours, stretching back 8, 10, 12 hours, all across the globe, erupting in praise in nearly every single language, people have been calling upon Jesus Christ? We're not inventing this right now. This moment, standing up, and I can't remember what we started with, not 10,000 reasons, the other one, look and see. So look and see, right? That was not us inventing worship here in this moment. Like, I'm so glad we got it figured out in English. We simply joined a chorus that was already in motion from all around the world. 
Every single ethnic group, all these tribes and languages, people who look so different from us, that is the church universal. It's amazing. One of the best worship experiences of my life was being cross-cultural. I was in Hong Kong in one service, and I was having a hard time following along. I had those headphones on, and someone was trying to translate, and it was bad. So I just threw them to the side. And then there was this glorious moment when I heard a guitar, a guitar lick on the thing. And I said this, lick, is that what they call it? The kids are calling it these days. So I, I heard this song and I thought, I know this song. It's amazing. I know this song. Our church, within the last five, six, seven years, had begun singing it in the contemporary service. It took us a long time to get there. It was just organ with this. And then some crazy people in our church said, what if we had other instruments? And it was the song, and you know it. You could hum it with me. Lord, I lift your name on high. You know this song, right? You know the song. You got it? That's not like a kazoo, but whatever it is. That song, they started playing it. And I'm in Hong Kong, and I'm standing there, and I think to myself, like, what? The entire thing had been rewritten in Cantonese. And I stood with these hundreds of people and listened to them with all sincerity and joy engage in worship of Jesus Christ, then I I was melted. I thought like, this is insane. You mean this has been going on? God has been calling people to himself here for my whole life. I'd never once thought about it. That's the church universal. I'm so grateful that we're a part of it. It's what makes the offer of the gospel so unbelievably sweet. You don't need to be a U.S. citizen to have your sins forgiven. And I'm so grateful for that. One day, all the church is headed to that universal place. One day, church will mean not geography, but you will be perfectly united with everyone who is called upon the name of Jesus, not only in every place, but in every language, and get this, over the course of all human history, even time, God will figure out how to create a perfect unified voice from every bit of diversity of human life, even across time. Now, you can get on a plane or a boat or a megabus. How cool are those? You could get on any of these things tomorrow and find a different culture and a different language. You cannot solve the time thing, right? You cannot solve the time thing. You need 1.2 gigawatts to do that, and you don't have it. So God will figure it out, though. God will figure it out out. And that's an amazing thought. But what I want to call you to is, even though that's amazing, it's important, we're all headed there, we're not there yet. And I know that this may seem like a downer. I just described this glorious place. And I want you to look around, because here is where we are. You're not there yet. What you have is here and now, It is wood and old carpet and pews in a city called Tallahassee. This is here and now. And so the church needs to be as vital as important now as it will be there. And so the Bible says not just universal, but local church. That's why the article said the universal church finds expression in local churches. And so here's what I would say to you. If you were a Christian... It is not enough to long for that day when you'll be united spiritually and physically in a new body with the universal church. You need to ask yourself, who am I being called to be united to in the here and now in Tallahassee or wherever you're, you're from? 
If you are a Christian, you ought to belong to a local congregation. I don't want to assume that. Every time I teach something, I want to do a couple of things. I want to show that it's right, that it's true. I want to show you the facts of the case. A squared plus B squared equals, and you got it, C squared, right? I want to show that that's true. But we need to show that it's beautiful as well, or else people are just going to think like, oh, this drudgery. I know it's true that God wants me to be a part of that church. That's not what he's calling you to. It's for your good. And so every time you teach anything anywhere, think about what is true, but then think about why it's good and beautiful. And I don't want to assume that you see the church as beautiful. Maybe you're hanging on by a string. This is the last shot. It's like, I'm coming this Sunday, and next week I'm finding the best buffet in town. The brunch is on. I don't assume that it's beautiful to you. I want to read to you a quote from John Stott that really gets at the heart of the importance of belonging to a local church. I love it for all its frankness, all of its complete, complete honesty. It's a very British kind of, British kind of quote. This is a quote from John Stott. He's writing a book on the church, and he did not want to assume anything about our commitment to the local church. He says this, First, I am assuming that we are all committed to the church. We're not only committed to Christ, but we are committed to the body of Christ. At least I hope so. I trust that none of my readers is that grotesque anomaly, an unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person. For the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. For his purpose, conceived in a past eternity, being worked out in history, and to be perfected in a future eternity, is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church. That is, to call out of the world a people for his own glory. True, we may be dissatisfied, even disillusioned with some aspects of the institutional church, but we are still committed to Christ and his church. This is the call. Your disappointment, your disillusionment, feelings of being not connected, in the midst of all of that, this is not surprise God. He knew it from the start, and he still calls us to a meaningful connection with one another in a local church. Some of the ways we know this, there's a lot, I'm just going to give you one, is by the way the commands of Scripture happen. Do you know that it's impossible for you to live the Christian life except for meaningful connection to other people? You ever thought about that? You know there are dozens and dozens and dozens of commands that require another person. I was going to say it's like acrobatics. It's like those things where you have to have the person to throw you, but it would just get weird real fast. So that's not what church is like. The point is, though, you need help. This is what I mean. Listen, this is just a few of the ways the Bible speaks. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Jesus Christ includes one another. Bear one another's burdens. That's Galatians 6. James chapter 5. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 1 Thessalonians. Therefore encourage one another. Build one another up just as you are doing. Ephesians chapter 4, be kind to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor. 
I could go on. Hebrews chapter 10, right after it says, don't neglect meeting together. Don't neglect meeting together. Right after it says that, it says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. How to stir one another up. None of these commands make any sense apart from the assumption that you are meaningfully connected to other Christians around you. You will fail the exam unless you have that kind of connection. I think this is good and is right. It's part of the reason I think the Bible commands it. Let me talk about the beauty of it for just a moment. If you're going to study the church, I want to point out all the ways that God gives us metaphors for the church. It's amazing. When he thought to himself, what is the church compared to Jesus? You know, one of the first things he said is the body. It's the body. The church is so much a part of the life, the outflow of who Jesus is. He said that you right now are hands and feet and arms and legs, the very body of Jesus Christ. That's one of the ways that God chose to describe what the church is. That's an amazing picture. Now, sometimes the church is healthy. It's more like a chiseled Greek god body of Jesus. It's more like the rock or something. And then there's other times, definitively, of course, sin, confusion, selfishness makes it more dad bodish than anything else, right? Sometimes the church functions a much like my back, not great. But nonetheless, it's an amazing picture. When God says, this is what the church is like, so connected to Jesus, it's his body. Another picture that's supposed to compel us, God's building. The church is God's building. What is God doing? He's building a masterpiece. It is his Frank Lloyd Wright moment. It is his absolute Picasso. He is, he is working. You are the building of God. That's what the Bible says. When God intends to build something, it's beautiful. We shouldn't disdain it. If God is building the church and we spend half of our time disparaging that thing God is building, I think we're dangerously close to offending the builder. Another thing that he says, a tree. You know that the church is supposed to be like a tree. That's the beautiful vision. This last week, I was telling the kids how I want to go to North, Northern, North, North Dakota. I do want to do that too. Northern California because of these trees. I was telling them about redwood trees. I said, I don't even know what you mean. Why don't you show us a picture? So I got up a picture of the one where the car drives through the tree. And it was a wonderful, glorious, beautiful thing to watch them look at the picture. And it took about 10 seconds, 10 to 15 seconds for them to figure out what was going on. The glory of it, the bigness, the massiveness, they, they could not compute it. And to watch their eyes open and look at me and finally say, that car is driving through the tree. Do you see this tree, Dad? It's so big. And they wanted to spend the next 10, 15, 20 minutes just looking at pictures of these trees. And when God said, what's my church going to be? He thought about a tree. It's one of the things that he says. More than that, this is probably the most profound. Jesus bled and he died so that he could win for himself a bride. Have you ever watched in a wedding... It's that point when the doors open up and the, the bugle, I was going to say the bugle starts to play. <laughs> like, wonderful bugling. Go to bugles. Bugles are us for your wedding. But the, uh, the doors open, Canon and D, right? Comes down and of course, the ceremony in that moment is all about the exquisite beauty of the bride. 
She spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Some of you dads are like, add a few more. more a lot on this dress. She's been working out for four months to fit into it perfectly. She got up at 2.30 to do her hair. She flew in a makeup artist from Texas, right? Everything is exquisite. This is about her. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But one thing that I always do is I always talk to the groom and I say, I want you to think about that moment because that day is going to mostly, it's about your bride. It really is. But that moment when you're standing right there and you turn and you look and she begins to walk toward you, that's always a good time to joke. No, just watch carefully. She wants to come toward you, not away. If she runs, that's bad. But that moment is really astounding. The feeling in a person's heart as they watch this person that they love, this person they're covenanting with, who looks splendidly, amazingly beautiful in all of her glory, and she's walking to him to be received by him. When God wanted to picture the way he feels about the church, the way that Jesus feels about you as his people gathered together, he said to himself, you know what? Yeah, that's the moment. That's the thought. It's bride, it's groom. This is what we've inherited. That is the love, the connection, the affection that Jesus has for his church. That's who we are. One of the other things that we can do to define what something is is to say what it does. We don't have a lot of time for this. I want to wrap up. If you have not heard about the mission of the church, you probably haven't been at Midtown more than like five weeks because this is every other week we talk about who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be in the world. We hit it last week a little bit too. But it's fitting, right? Not just what's your name, but what do you do? You can ask someone's name. That's one identifier. If you want to go further and you're still confused, you start to describe what they do. Hey, do you know Jorge? No, I've never heard of him. Well, he's a soccer player. He plays for Southampton in the EPL, right? Just so now you know. What he does helps to define who he is. I wanted to be hip and cool because soccer just started, I think, somewhere. And I'm trying to inherit a team, and I think Southampton's it. So anyway, you'd say to someone, do you know who Michael Bolton is? You know who that is? Someone would say, no, I don't. And you describe what he does. And what he does is melt faces with power ballads from the 90s. That's what he does. That's who, my, that's who Michael Bolton is. What he does helps define who he is. You could say to someone excitedly, like I might, I love Kanye. You know what I mean? I just love Kanye. I say, who is that? Oh, well, he's my organic chemistry tutor. Right? So you, you thought I, was, I wasn't. He's a tutor. So I, you would describe what the person does. You describe what the person does, and it helps to say who they are. Let me just say a few things about who we are. This is in the article. The church is defined by love of God, love of others, and love of the world. This is what the church is. The church is that group of people who have as its focus and aim and highest joy to worship Jesus Christ. Church services, when we gather, something happens specifically that God loves. He loves to receive worship from the diversity and the unity of his church. So when we gather, of course, we want to hear, have lost people hear about Jesus. We want to help you. But this service is mostly about God so that he might be pleased by us. What the church does is worship. Another thing the church does is it cares for one another. That's how we define who we are. We care for one another. 
We bear one another's burdens. So when you come to church, you ought not to think only, who, how can I worship God? Not only what can I do to have my needs met, but who has God placed around me that I can meet their needs? It's one of the things that the church does. And then finally, of course, we exist as salt and light in the world. We exist for others. What is the church? It's the witness of Jesus Christ in a world that needs salt and needs light. What we do helps define who we are. Let me say one other thing that I think might help if you have felt discouragement or disillusionment with the church. I want you to know my goal, my hope is simply that you remain faithful, that you tough it out, that you plod together with us. I know it's tempting to just opt out completely. It might mean that this is not the church for you. I know that I'm selling the local church, right? I don't want to be like one of those guys who sells you on a product and then at the last minute says, you know what? I just happen to have five or six right here. This might not be the church. The goal of our leadership is to see Christians plugged into gospel preaching, caring, consistent, healthy churches. That's the goal. Anywhere you are, I like our church. I think you should be connected to it. But the end goal is not here. I would want to say to you as well, one of the options the Bible gives is not to opt out, but to adjust your expectations. God will meet you over the course of the long haul by being faithful to the means of grace that he's given you. And sometimes I think we can overpromise as a church, honestly. We can overpromise. I can say things to you like, come to our revolutionary worship service. The world will never be the same. Six weeks with us and your entire work life will be turned upside. Probably not, honestly. Like a year from now, you'll look at me and I'll look at you and this will be the arrangement and here we'll be. Some of the same struggles, same confusions, maybe a little bit of progress, a little bit of light. But the Bible does not give us the option to opt out. Instead, it calls us to the beautiful, wonderful, plodding faithfulness of connection with the people of God. Over the long haul. It's amazing how God can grow someone when they just hang in there and stick it out. The goal for us is not to be a flash in the pan. We don't want to just be a spark so the world can see. We need to be the consistent, life-giving light of the world. That's what we're called to do and to be. And I would love, I want you to join us. The church is glorious, it really is. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for your word. Thank you for the commitment of your people to your word. I pray that we would find a new commitment, a new vigor to what you're doing in the church.